This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for January 18th, 2023. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, at the start of the COVID-19 outbreak, there were many who argued that we should be dropping the social measures meant to limit the spread of the disease in order to increase the number of infections and consequent immunity. Today, I'd like to take a look back at that idea and think about what it means moving forward. So for starters, what's the logic behind that concept? Steve, the idea is basically the same as the logic behind vaccines, though it varies in some important ways. Being infected induces an immune response that has memory, meaning that it results in a persistent relative resistance to reinfection. In fact, actual infection might induce a better response than a vaccine. While most COVID vaccines use single antigens, during infection, the immune response gets a chance to see every viral protein and could perhaps produce a much broader immune response. In addition, the amount of antigen might be greater, there might be a greater length of exposure to that antigen, and the inflammation that's produced during the infection might act as a kind of adjuvant, a nonspecific booster of induced immunity. We know that many infections induce near-lifelong immunity, preventing people from ever being reinfected. This is the case for infections such as measles and rubella. Of course, it's not quite that easy. To develop immunity, you have to first be infected and incur the risks of morbidity and possibly serious illness and death. This is particularly true for people at high risk, the very group that we would prioritize for protection. Some people have persistent symptoms following infection, symptoms that obviously could be avoided by avoiding infection in the first place. And not all immunity is lifelong. An extreme example is tetanus. The amount of tetanus toxin produced in people with clinical tetanus is so small that there's no induced immunity. And that means that people who survive tetanus should receive the tetanus vaccine. But there are more common examples. The best are the alpha coronaviruses, which are distant relatives of the beta coronavirus that causes COVID-19. It's clear that people can be repeatedly infected with these viruses that cause upper respiratory tract infections. So infection-induced immunity is clearly not a panacea. So, Eric, I want to explore a little bit more some of the themes you just discussed. The concept of infection versus vaccination shouldn't be at odds with each other, but rather we should look at these events in a format that is best for the health of the public and the individual. What we know from SARS-CoV-2 is infection without any prior immunity can lead to severe morbidity, hospitalization, and a high mortality especially in those who are more vulnerable, such as individuals who are older, older than 65 or 70, which really isn't that old, and that we need to think about how we prevent this morbidity and induce durable, broad immunity. And so the concepts that you raise lead to a natural strategy, which is block infection, receive vaccination, and then if one becomes infected post-vaccination, the severe morbidity has been substantially blunted. So that as tools emerge, then we as a community should think carefully about how we use these tools to improve the health of the public. This does not address issues or other complications from COVID, such as long COVID or symptoms which can emerge that are diffuse, but can be quite debilitating, such as fatigue, mental cloudiness, shortness of breath, that can be prolonged after a bout of COVID. And we do not understand the interplay 
between prior immunity, infection, vaccination, and the development of long COVID. But there are other complications we have to think about besides the acute severe illness. And as we saw three years ago, overwhelming the healthcare system itself, which becomes a problem in terms of health and wellness when that much illness occurs in that short a period of time when a new pathogen enters a community and spreads so rapidly, such as through respiratory transmission. Another point that you raise is the issue of lifelong immunity, which I think is a complicated concept, at least it is for me. Certain infections, smallpox, measles, rubella, as you mentioned, one can become infected and then not have illness later in life. And vaccination can bring on similar protective immunity. But I actually think this is a little more complicated because the life expectancy 100 years ago was not as long as it is currently. And until recently, many of these viruses, if not all, were circulating. So those of us who had prior infection or vaccination were auto-boosted when we were exposed to the pathogen from our children, our friends, our neighbors, our communities, and probably had subclinical illness that led to increased immunity. In fact, we, in our pages, published about 15 years ago, the event of the mumps outbreak at one of the universities in the U.S., in a nearly fully vaccinated community of college students, raising the specter that lifelong immunity may not be induced by vaccination, as these were fully vaccinated individuals at the time. And in my mind, I think these data inform us that vaccination or prior infection induces immunity, but that subclinical repeated exposure may also boost that immunity over decades. And it's not something easy to study given the realities of how vaccinations are deployed and these diseases are substantially controlled, so spread is incredibly limited, particularly in resource-rich environments. So I think that there are several factors that we have to think about in terms of understanding natural infection, vaccination, and the interplay, which, if done correctly, can be used to improve the health of the public. But it's not a one-size-fits-all. It's different aspects of infection and public health tools to decrease morbidity. Lindsay, the idea of intentionally transmitting disease in order to induce protection isn't a new one. It was particularly applied decades ago to chickenpox, where there were these chickenpox parties where people would deliberately expose their children to chickenpox with the idea that getting it at a young age when the disease is relatively mild would protect them later against getting disease as an adult. Of course, almost everyone got chickenpox as a child, so there really wasn't that much adult disease at the time. But that's an example of exactly what you were talking about. Chickenpox immunity is pretty much lifelong, but the virus remains latent and zoster can occur later on. So that while people were getting a mild disease if exposed as children, they remained at risk of shingles for the rest of their lives. Now with the vaccine, things are different and people should get vaccinated rather than get chickenpox as children. And we now have a vaccine that can even protect the gults against zoster. But it's both an example and a counterexample of this idea of deliberate exposure. So with COVID-19, we're now at a stage where infection is probably the rule rather than the exception. And outside of China, most of the world's population has been infected. How has that affected the course of the disease? I think we've seen a few different phenomena as a result of widespread infection. 
First, there's a lot more immunity out there. This likely accounts for falling hospitalization and death rates, even among those who've not received the vaccine. Second, we've discussed several studies on past podcasts that show that the combination of vaccination and prior infection provides much better protection against both infection and severe disease than either does alone. And finally, the presence of high amounts of pre-existing immunity in the population means that there's a selective pressure acting on the virus to produce variants that can still infect these immune individuals. This has led to the viral variants that we're now seeing circulate. I do want to highlight that widespread acute population infection does lead to an overwhelming amount of severe illness and death, as we saw two and a half years ago, and unfortunately, as we think, may be unfolding in China currently. So the value of eliciting pre-existing immunity before exposure to natural infection is high. Having said that, the nature of the population immunity will elicit selective pressure on the virus, so it has to evolve. And in fact, a virus that is newly introduced into a population has a lot of evolving to do to better adapt to that population, both in terms of how it's spread, how it binds to cells, but also how it evades the immune responses elicited, whether those immune responses are from infection, which, as you mentioned, Eric, leads to a broad base of immune responses, given the exposure to all the viral proteins, as well as likely prolonged antigen exposure over many days with viral replication before immune clearance, but also through vaccination, which elicits certain immunodominant immune responses that will provide selective pressure as well. So what we are witnessing over the last two and a half years and witnessing now in areas where there's high level transmission going on is this viral adaptation to be better fit in surviving and spreading given the nature of the challenges in the host, including the emerging immune response. This type of evolutionary interaction takes time to reach an equilibrium. And so it is unclear when this equilibrium will be reached, as it likely will take years, but it is something which has likely occurred with other viruses that we've been exposed to and have already discussed, but our species has had centuries, if not longer, to co-adapt with these different viruses to find the equilibrium that causes the least amount of disease in humans while allowing the virus to replicate and persist, which is its goal. So it's an interesting process to observe. We do not understand the significance of the different variants that emerge. It is happening by chance, but it's chance that then under selective pressure is selected for so that the variants that emerge are emerging for reasons that we will need to understand if they persist. Lindsay, I do want to draw a distinction between evolution and social strategies. Evolution is going to occur, just as you said, and there will be some sort of detente eventually between the virus and humans. But that doesn't mean that that's a good strategy to choose to try to control a disease like COVID-19. That means a very large number of deaths between the point where you have a relatively virulent virus and the point where you get a less virulent virus. And we do have many tools, particularly vaccination, that help control this. So I 
do think there was a time when people were advocating for increasing the amount of spread of the virus. But that honestly doesn't make sense with the tools we have right now. I don't think that makes sense. Given where science is today, as we've shown with COVID-19, tools can be created in months that can blunt the severity of illness. The distinction in my mind is not that we eradicate SARS-CoV-2 so it doesn't transmit. We stop it from causing severe disease, hospitalization, and death. And tools which prevent transmission, like social distancing masks, and tools which we can create through bioengineering, such as vaccines and other tools, need to be done in concert and synergy to prevent severe illness. And so one can imagine a strategy where vaccination is deployed, severe illness is blunted, natural infection occurs because it's very difficult to stop, but we now have mild illness throughout the community, not severe illness. And so it's using our tools in a way that prevents what we care most about, which is hospitalization and death, which means we have to understand the tempo and the drivers of those events so we can use our tools properly. But I think allowing a pathogen to spread through the community with a one to five or 10% mortality in seniors is very dangerous and reckless in my view. Getting back to the immunity induced by prior infection, today we published a study from Cutter that looks at how well prior infection protects against the currently circulating strains of the virus. So how did this study work? The study was similar to many of the other studies we published from Cutter. Like the others, this is a retrospective test negative case control study that used the extensive national health records. These included both comprehensive testing and vaccination data. Prior reports have looked at the effectiveness of vaccination. At this point, though, almost everyone in the country has received vaccines. So this study looked at how well a record of past infection could protect against the currently circulating BA.275 variant. As listeners might recall, BA.275 is one of the highly divergent Omicron subvariants that appears to escape immunity pretty well. By mid-September of last year, BA.275 had become the predominant subvariant. Because the national database is quite large, there can be a very effective matching between cases and controls. Eric and Steve, I think what these data show us is the value of investing in public health. And do we have the infrastructure to be able to diagnose, sequence, have the clinical data to collect and combine information, and to be responsive in real time? And so I think the value of having public health systems that are able to monitor for these types of changes, such as the evolution of the virus to a descendant of BA2, and then to be able to assess the impact of this is incredibly valuable and should remind us that if we have public health infrastructure, we're able to make insights based upon events that occur in the community. And this is very valuable, and I think it's a lesson that we've hopefully learned and are continuing to learn as we understand observations from different communities around the world that are able to make these types of insights. And back to the Cutter study, what did the investigators find? They compared those infected at various time points with those with no record of infection. Taking all comers, infection in the pre-Omicron era provided almost no protection. Infection with BA1 or BA2 resulted in intermediate levels of protection, and prior BA4 or BA5 infection produced high levels of protection. This was true for both vaccinated and unvaccinated individuals. 
though the number of unvaccinated was small enough that the confidence intervals were very large. These results seem consistent with anecdotal data. Prior infection with closely related viruses appears to provide more protection than infection with more distantly related viruses. Of course, the big variable is time. Since older viral variants have disappeared over the course of the epidemic, we can't tell if decreasing protection is primarily due to a mismatch in antigens or simply declining immunity over time. Eric, as you highlight, it is difficult to understand the pathogenic potential of variants that emerge over time because they are emerging in communities that have had prior infection. Thus, the ability to understand pathogenicity, disease-causing potential, with BA2 or BA4 or 5 or BQ or XBB is very challenging because they're temporally in series, which means there is a greater amount of time from the last immunity event, and it's occurring in populations that have had prior immune exposures. Unfortunately, in China, we have a situation where there may be a largely naive population suggesting that the Omicron variants may not have less severe disease potential, although it's difficult to assess this. But it does highlight the interplay, as you suggest, between a new variant and its disease potential and the time between last immunologic exposure in a population or individual and exposure to that variant, which speaks to the durability of the immunity elicited by these beta coronaviruses and the implications this have for severity of illness. And what does all this mean for us going forward? Well, we can't really control exposure, at least on a population level. And we'd certainly like to continue to provide maximal protection to the most vulnerable among us. I think that means we keep vaccinating as the vaccine carries little risk and likely similar levels of protection to infection. And in fact, for those who have been infected, there's probably a synergistic effect on immunity. What remains unclear is how often we should revaccinate and how often we should be changing the antigens in the vaccine. So Steve, I think I would want to highlight a couple of points. We need to better define what our goal is. Is it infection, mild illness, or severe illness? And what the implications are for waning immunity on severe illness. Currently, we really rely on a decline in the neutralizing antibody titer, be it against the vaccine design strain or the latest strain that's circulating. And that may or may not be the sum total of the immunity we care about. Many of us, probably most of us, think it is not, although it is an important marker of immune activation and potential protection. So we need to better understand how we measure if someone is still protected or not. Number two, what are the implications for other consequences of COVID, such as long COVID as previously discussed, which is something we don't really understand as a community and a lot of investigation is ongoing. But that's an area that many providers and patients are concerned about where we have little to no data to guide our thinking. A third point I want to make, Steve, is, is this really that different than flu? We vaccinate annually for flu, but have we really figured out how to measure proper protection against flu? And should we be thinking about how to augment our prevention strategies, our vaccine strategies for pathogens that circulate frequently every year, causing high-level transmission 
and a fair amount of severe illness? And should we improve how we think about preventive strategies for these other important respiratory viruses, including how to augment the vaccines? When should we be revaccinating? And what the basis of revaccination strategies should be? So as Eric has already mentioned, the frequency of vaccination, which antigen should be designed, what platform should be utilized, whether homologous or heterologous, and which outcome we care most about are things that we all have to learn more about. But the interplay of these concepts, I think, will guide our future decision making. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric.